We're alive. Hi everybody, it's Toby Miller here. Welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast and I'm in the Zeta Townhouse Cocktail Lounge where I was the other night for my chat with Sarah Cooper. Need a drink. I'll drink just, just have a glass of water please and I'll have a uh, plowman's. The plumbers. Yeah, allow me to translate for this northern oik who's descended into the sophisticated climes of the south. Do you like that? It's a put you in your ease. That describes it perfectly. Um, the only known Blackburn Rovers supporter ever in, on this couch. <laughs> and I, I'd like the fried chili corn, there's no meat in that, is there? No, it's, it's, it's more balls, like it's basically like some kind of nazi or chip so it's not like a great. That's fine. Just... That's fine. I'll say that. Thanks. Anyway, more importantly, he is, of course, an extremely and justifiably renowned. Uh, writer, and I'm speaking of Professor David Hesmond-Halge. Dave, it's very good to be with you. And you, Toby. But the first thing I want you to do, because there are so many people around the world who pronounce your last name differently from one another, from all of us, how do you say it, and what do you like to hear said? I do the same thing. I say Hesmond-Halge because I dropped my H's. Right. But I guess what you should say is Hesmond-Halge. Right. But I really don't mind. You really don't mind. As long as, as, long as they know it's you and you know it's you, that's yeah. what you answer to. Very good. Now, I understand, old boy, that you're here for your investiture as a member of the House of Lords today in London <laughs> from your normal haunt in Leeds. Is this correct? It is, yeah. I thought it was long overdue, really, that yeah. my uh, contributions to the field were recognised in the form of a, a peerage. Right. Yeah. And what time is the investiture, and is it open to members of the public? Not to people like you, no. no it's a, it's a <laughs> pri- private occasion. Yeah, just uh, you and Her Majesty. And yes, and Lord David Putnam, who, uh, <laughs> who I'm interviewing today. That's the real oh, reason oh, I'm going you? to the House of Lords. Ah, this is the former head of a Hollywood studio, a very famous British film producer and TV executive and all kinds of things. And kind of policy entrepreneur. So he had a lot policy to do entrepreneur. That's right, cause with he was Labour's cultural policy. He was, yeah. he was a founder of Skillset, yeah. uh, which is a kind of strange British organisation that uh, supposedly helps to develop the skills that we all need to compete in the global creative economy. But yeah. he was also very, very involved in the formation of what is perhaps laughably called creative industries policy. Now, can you, for those outside Britain, we have listeners in 50 countries, yeah. can you explain skill sets and can you explain a lovey? Because I suspect he's a lovey, whereas <laughs> you and I are not. Is that right? Is he a lovey? I think that he's a lovey and I think that you and I are both you, loveys, actually. We're proto, Toby. we want to be lovies. Well, yeah, yeah, that's right, aspiring <laughs> lovies. He's, he's, yeah, the great case, the good. Anyway. he's definitely the great and the good, isn't yeah, he? Yeah, he is. Yeah. So what, he's connected. skill set, the great and the good lovey. I will struggle with <laughs> skill set. Skill set is an, an organisation that is, as I say, intended to... Uh, ensure that uh, all those boys and girls out there are developing the skills they need so that Britain's economy can compete with the rest, but particularly in the areas of uh, creative and cultural industries. Okay. And so, so it's bollocks. There's a fair degree of bollocks involved in it. There are one or two people involved in skill set who are trying to make something better of it. You know, it's one of those contradictions you yeah. often find in these. Uh, dubious outfits sure. and, uh, and yeah. Putnam himself is a contradictory figure actually yep. I mean you know he's a Labour figure he's on the social democratic left he, he in the neoliberalizing era of the 90s and 2000s he was he was in his own way pushing 
against some of the worst excesses of uh, of la new labour marketisation. Um, he co-wrote a pretty good critique of Hollywood. I forget the book which has different titles yeah. here and in the US. I forget what it's called. Yeah. He co-authored a book about based on his experiences yeah. of uh, of running Columbia Pictures. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Where where he was, you know, trying to create decent art out of the Hollywood system in, yeah. in his own yeah. way. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But maybe I'm being too soft. I'm getting soft in my own age. I'm getting too soft well, on people. You're warming up like to sucking up to him too. Right? <laughs> That's <laughs> right. I mean, this is, you can't really walk in and say, so all his skill set's just crap. Creative industries is bollocks. <laughs> That's right. And you're a social fascist reference. <laughs> when I come to write up the interviews, there'll be a scathing <laughs> critique, which is... No, I, don't, I, 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 I hope I'll maintain my integrity. But he, he's a lovey in the sense that he's part of this social democratic arts world of, this, of southern England. Is that yeah. fair? To, is that yeah. a reasonable description that's, of that? That's very fair. And what the, the, this project we're doing, me and colleagues at, uh, at Leeds, Kate Oakley and yeah. uh, Dave Lee and Melissa Nisbet, uh, we're looking at the kind of um, lack of inclusivity, lack of equality involved in cultural policy making, I suppose. And, you know, it, a, a lot of these uh, Labour figures are very well-meaning, but they typify it. They, they, they're white straight men or uh, there's, 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 there's certainly uh, a few women in there but yeah they're certainly uh, white and middle class and uh, uh, you know many of them go back years figures like Melvin Bragg, Joan Bate well again many people in other countries won't have heard of these figures but they're pretty recognisable in Britain Joan, when uh, Dave and I were young though he's younger than I am Joan Baker was known as the uh, thinking man's sex uh, yeah, television. yeah, and uh, he is a very important advocate for the elderly now. She's a yeah. day, a member of the very house where Dave is about to be invested, <laughs> and she was very famous during her time as a broadcaster because she had a long-standing affair with Harold Pinter and was, in a sense, his muse uh, when his first marriage was ending. I think. Yeah, uh, and Melvin Bragg is a novelist, but also for years he's this—he's interesting because he's northern, actually, isn't he? Yeah, but Cumbria. He, yeah. yeah, but he, in a sense, has been the face and the voice of arts television in Britain for 35 years. Yep. Yep. On that, ITV, that's the right. Station, and now on Sky Arts, yep. satellite station. He was indeed in the uh, good old days of public service broadcasting. He was mm. the person who presented the South Bank show, which uh, in its own way tried to mediate between high and low culture. Mm. Mm. I remember doing documentaries on the Smiths. Uh, I remember doing a documentary on Rough Trade Records, which was uh, narrated by Simon Frith, who some of our listeners will know his work. Mm. Uh, so yeah, you know, again, another contradictory mm. figure, but very much uh, um, on the inside of that world. I mean, you, it's elitism, of course it's elitism. Um, but, you know, I think it's important to recognise some of the contradictions involved, that some of some of those people on the inside are more amenable to a conversation about equality and social justice than others. Right, and, and the great and the good element is that they're not doing this for their own selves, really, other than in aesthetic sense, perhaps in a social justice sense in some instances. They're doing this because they think it's for the public good. Yeah. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Yeah, yeah. there's some notion of public good still alive uh, yeah. in those worlds, and uh, and if we miss that, you know, we miss something significant. Um, but you know, that shouldn't stop us, in my view, being uh, absolutely furious about the social inequalities that lead to 
that very limited number of people having access. And of course, many, many of those people have a, an altogether more dubious agenda than these kind of uh, arts lovies and, uh, and, you know, soft social democrat people mm. that mm. we're talking about. And you mentioned creative industries policy, Dave. I recently, I think recently... You're a big fan, aren't you, of creative <laughs> industries policy. You've expressed that view many times in print. <laughs> I read, I think, a recent article co-authored by you, I forget where, that was critical of creative industries policy. Have I got that right? Or am I yeah, that's probably that? right, yes. Yeah. Where was yeah. that? Yeah, there could be another number of candidates. There are a number of candidates. Yeah, it yeah. was with a co-author. Right, yeah. Would that be Mark Banks? Could be. Yeah, so could from the Open University. Us, could, yeah. you, could you tell us your concerns about this project, as it were? Not, not the project that you and your colleagues are doing, but the creative industries project as a policy formation, shall we say. Yeah, yeah. There's... Uh, a, a, a kind of spectacular vagueness involved in what creative industries policies are you know what it actually leads to isn't always clear it's a, often a rhetoric uh, that says you know we're with it we're we're uh, in uh, we have an understanding of commercial popular culture and uh, you know I am somebody who uh, I guess came out of that generation of the 1970s and 80s and you know most of my favorite art is commercially produced be it popular music mm. novels you know I, I recognize those contradictions creative industries policy though often comes uh, with a, a marketizing agenda um, and uh, is has been whether it's been always intentional or not uh, a way of prizing open more and more space for um, um, forms of uh, cultural policy that uh, um, don't uh, support innovative or challenging or democratising art. That's it. it. In a nutshell, I mean, I suppose one of the things that me and Mark were talking about, Mark Banks, in the article that we co-wrote that I think you, you're referring to, is the way it completely creative industries policy has tended to almost entirely ignore questions of labour, uh, the problems of cultural labour markets. That's something I've written about quite a lot recently. You know, my last uh, book was on that, Creative Labour, uh, that I wrote with um, Sarah Baker. And there's no doubt about it that uh, cre uh, creative labour markets are highly precarious, they're extremely difficult, they're exclusive, they're high risk for the people involved in them. All of that disappears from creative industries rhetoric, or very often does. And the academic advocates of creative industries are, um, are as guilty of that as the policy, policy entrepreneurs who promote that idea. Could you tell us about this latest book, uh, Creative Industry, uh, sorry, Creative Labour, yeah. with Sarah Baker? Who yeah. published the book? That's Routledge. And, um, when did it come out? Uh, 2011. So it's a couple of years ago uh, now. Um, and um, it's an attempt, really, to... Um, I really am getting soft in my old age. Take a balanced approach to the question of, of creative labour. Because... Uh, for all the um, points I've just made about the difficulties and dangers for people, perhaps especially young people, trying to 
get a decent job making television or making music or, or working in journalism, there are still ways in which those jobs, those occupations can produce good work. You know, the, the, there are satisfactions, there are rewards involved. The, the, I, I think there's something, you know, fundamentally attractive about cultural production. You know, I believe in communication, I believe in a, a certain notion of art, I suppose, that um, has dangers of being bourgeois, overly bourgeois, but, you know, I, I think we need to defend uh, cultural production. So I, I, I think some of the critiques that have been made of creative labour maybe go a little too far in uh, in polemically claiming that the whole thing is screwed and that there's no space for people to to get good work. One of the things we tried to do in the book really was just to develop some conception of what a good job is, you know, based on thinking and reading from sociology of work, philosophy of work. And, you know, that's something I'm interested in, is kind of clarifying what it is we're looking for. What, what's the basis of, of, of our critiques? What, what are our normative principles? And, you know, that, that some of that comes, for me, out of a, a discontent with what a, a, a really life-changing read for me was Nancy Fraser's work, first encountering that back in the early 90s, and, and Nancy Fraser's critique of uh, Foucault, really, and Foucauldianism was crypto-normativity, that there seems to be a very, very strong normative line being taken, but what it actually is is often very, very unclear. The normative principles are hidden. Um, and so I guess, you know, ever since then, I've always tried to make my normative principles clear, even if uh, that risks sometimes um, uh, uh, ending up in this kind of uh, complex, contradictory muddle, because things are difficult. They're difficult to assess, difficult to evaluate. So the creative labour attempts to do that, really. It attempts to say, you know, what kinds of jobs would we want to see in a good society, in a better world? And can you tell us how you ended up understanding the concept of a good job, what it is? It consists of a number of issues, really. I mean, you know, it's fundamentally got to be rooted in people's ordinary, everyday experiences of work. So it would include, you know, the, the possibilities of... Uh, of of, uh, of sociality, you know, of sociability and, and, and having good working relations with others. Bad jobs are those where people are set against each other, either within the same organisations or elsewhere. Um, good jobs would involve the ability to uh, feel that one's contributing to the common good, that, that, somebody's, that, that, that you're making a, a, a beneficial difference to the world. Um, a bad job for me would involve a sense that you know uh, you might be inhibiting the world, uh, you might be making things worse for other human beings in doing what you do. Um, there are a number of elements really that we, we lay out without you know going through the list uh, in, in detail. Um, and you know we look at what bad jobs are as well. We look at what will constitute uh, degrading and undignified labour for people. And, you know, for me, Toby, the fact is that many of the jobs, if you can get access to them in the cultural and creative industries, are not anything like as degrading or as, uh, um, as lacking in dignity as many uh, working class jobs in society. I, I, I'm a 
big fan of Andrew Ross's work and uh, God, I wish I'd have thought of the title he had for his book on, on Labour First. Nice work if you can get it. I think, you know, that old song expresses very nicely, very well. Um, you know, one, one of the major problems, which is that there is something desirable in that kind of work. The problems are access to it, supporting it, um, and neoliberal globalisation has, has made that more of a problem than it ever was. Could you also list, explain for us what creative labour is? And let me give you an example to, to deal with. We're in a cocktail bar where often I the staff invent their own... Just a normal everyday experience to me, yeah. 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 Where often the staff will invent their own formulae for cocktails. Yeah, I mean, and they have signature cocktails in lots of places like this. We're in Clerkenwell, which is, in a sense, the centre of creative industries in the UK. In that, you know, within a square mile, you have hundreds of companies that are that aren't selling mustard or anything useful like a hammer. It's almost impossible to buy such things here. Uh, you know, like there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these shops, if you like. But Nothing so, but there are lots of people being very creative. Mm. And you see a lot of creative labour on the street, mostly sitting around having a fag, you know, <laughs> outside. Is the person who is working in what is clearly sort of a middle class, heavily culturally oriented place like this, and creating a cocktail, is that part of creative labour? Or, or is it somebody who's an architect? Yeah. Or a games designer? Good, good question, yeah. The, the, the term creative labour is uh, a, a cheat in the title of the book because what we're... Uh, first of all, all, all labour has creative elements. Um, um, some jobs uh, are privileged and have a stronger creative element than others. And thank you. Wow, look at that plough person. <laughs> <laughs> That's not like a... Any plowman's lunch I've ever, ever had before, but nor I. It's not what you get at Waitrose in a little plastic packet. No, <laughs> down at my local pub in Ilkley. No, but it looks very nice indeed. Um, don't yeah. don't feel you have to. Do, if if any of it's warm, and you think you want to get into it, don't feel. Will you turn the microphone off? No, 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 no. I will simply ask. Hear my chomping. No, no. I will ask a long question. While you're digging in, well, you, you, let, let, let me try and, uh, without rambling on too much, yeah. uh, answer the question you've just asked about uh, about creative labour. There's there's no way that I would want any definition to fail to recognise the ways in which people, in whatever jobs they do, try and make the most of it exercise their own creativity in their own ways but and there is a danger in using the title creative labor to refer to work in the cultural and creative industries which is what we were interested in that mm -hmm. we might seem to be doing that but the real interest for us is work in the cultural and creative industries because claims have been made that jobs there have a particularly rewarding, satisfying, creative nature. Mm -hmm. So we wanted to test that. We looked at three industries, television, music and magazine journalism, just because you can't look at the whole lot. 
So some of the problem is about the definition of cultural and creative industries. Where do the boundaries lie? Thank you very much. So cocktail waiters, waitresses, mm -hmm. um, you know, by my definition would lie outside that boundary. That doesn't make them any less interesting, any less important as human beings to me. You know, I would uh, uh, love to read a study of waitresses, uh, food retail workers, whatever. But we were actually focusing on what you might call symbol making, which has been my primary interest for mm -hmm. 20 years, the production of culture with culture defined as symbols. So I guess I start from music, film and television, which are lifelong passions of mine, mm -hmm. and try and understand how the form they take in modern societies comes to be as it is, how we understand production. That's what the cultural industries book that um, I wrote a few years ago and have revised since stood, is, is about. That's what creative labour books about. I mean, more recently, I suppose, I've started to turn to yeah, back to music and to look more generally at the sociology of music, uh, the role of music in people's lives, actually, which is not anything like so production-oriented. Mm -hmm. uh, I suppose I was always interested in looking at production in questions of experience, the experiences of cultural workers. That book, Creative Labour, is about that. It's about what do people say and think and do in relation to their to their work. Um, with the the new book I've got coming out on music in August, which is called Why Music Matters, that's much more generally about in what ways might might music enhance people's lives and what might stop it from doing so. Mm -hmm. Those questions of equality and social justice are still very much in there, but it's much uh, more generally a study of uh, uh, culture in people's lives rather than the production of it. And with that, I'm going to take a bite sure, because I'm out of this. Nibbling Nobby's nuts, the same goes <laughs> in your... <laughs> Sitting there sharing these things, wonderful thoughts of us. Now, one of the works you mentioned there is your book, Cultural Industries, which I think I'm right in saying is maybe in a third edition, is that right? Yep. Yep. Um, it's been an outstanding success and very influential. It's sold literally hundreds of thousands of copies. Hundreds of thousands of copies? No, not really. Well... Um, hundreds. It's an outstanding success. And I wonder whether you would retitle it now or not. And I ask that because in describing the Creative Labour book, you've mentioned the cultural and creative industries. And without wishing to get pedantic about this, I realise people use both these terms, and I'm still not really clear about what they mean. Now, let me, because I want you to have some more of that egg, <laughs> let me give you an interesting example of how it's arbitrary... It's really good. Is it good? I think this is. So. A well-known university in the centre of London, about you know, half a kilometre from here, asked me whether it should call its undergraduate degree cultural or creative industries. And it got some highly skilled marketers, not the sort of people who work in Clerkenwell, because they would have cost too much and not possibly been so stupid. They got some highly skilled marketers to look online and advise them. And what they found was that when they googled 
cultural industries. They got lots of big dick theorists and writers and important and famous people. When they googled creative industries, they got lots of former polytechnics offering degrees that looked dodgy, but they found many more references to creative industries and cultural industries. So they were worried that their capacity to look like a big kid would be enabled by cultural industries. Their capacity to recruit students by looking poly-like would be enabled by creative industries. So what should they do? I said, well, use both. What's it matter? People here seem to use both. There's an ex I hope that got you through that egg. <laughs> so my question is, what are they and what are the differences? It goes back to what we were saying earlier, really, about creative industries policy. And uh, I think uh, uh, there's a legacy to the term cultural industries that I find attractive. It was um, developed as a term in the um, 60s, 70s, 80s by people who were um, motivated by um, a concern for the fate of culture in the modern world and a concern with um, equality and people's access to culture. And they were concerned in particular with the industrialization of culture. Um, I'm thinking here of forums such as UNESCO, um, but also certainly by the 1980s in Britain, um, um, local activists, um, particularly on the left, who were uh, trying to question the um, elitism of traditional arts policy mm -hmm. and were arguing for a more grassroots approach that would fund um, local libraries make them the centre of cultural life within communities um, that were uh, arguing for the recognition of the centrality of commercial popular culture in people's lives and to try and work with that to try and enable um, people who've been perhaps excluded from both commercial and subsidised culture um, to be involved more so uh, Although it was never implemented, the Greater London Council's uh, cultural industries policies, a book called Nicholas Garnham was very involved in formulating the thinking there. He's been, his work's been uh, very influential on a strand of my work. Um, all that makes the idea of the, the term cultural industries attractive to me. In the 1990s, in Britain and elsewhere, people, various people, policy makers and academics wanted to distance themselves from that legacy and they found the term creative industries much more amenable. Creativity is one of those motherhood and apple pie terms. Nobody could object to it. Nobody could object to the idea of motherhood who could be against creativity. So creative industries was a kind of uh, you know, nice marketing term too. Now, I'm not trying to say that everybody who uses the term creative industries is, you know, guilty of trying to reject uh, a, a democratising strand in thinking about culture. Um, but, you know, there, I, I believe there are some of those histories in, involved mm -hmm. there. Um, I, I, I would agree with you if, if, if somebody asked me, I'd say, why not use both? Because, you know, 
although I've just given a, a, a long explanation of my understanding of the histories, so mm. I can imagine that a lot of people, especially mm. students, don't care and perhaps only should care at a certain point in addressing, thinking about these issues. Um, so, yeah, I tend to use both together now to avoid confusion. Now, I think that's very helpful, actually. Could you answer an issue for us? Because one of the claims made for the cultural industries policy area that you mentioned was about, in a sense, rather old-fashioned economism of the right as much as the left, namely removing barriers to entry and the difficulty of so doing in the context of multinational domination of much of the creation, delivery and reception of the popular. Part of the push on creative industries side is to say, well, none of that applies anymore because there's this thing called technology that you people who talk about work and socialism and so on have never understood and big time don't understand now. These barriers don't exist anymore. Very poor people can make music at a fairly high resolution level and distribute it for bugger all. So all the concerns of the 70s and 80s, and thank you very much, even the 90s, don't apply as before. And so all you have to do is have faith that culture will be produced by these oiks, and the oiks will bloody well go ahead and do it because they are innately creative. No? I mean, that is a strand, a position. And I wonder if you could talk to us about, about this new technology, particularly since the music industry is clearly the front, in the front line of this, and that's one of your yeah. areas of expertise. Yeah, yeah. I suppose if there's one issue that's most irritated me, I mean, I'm angered by many things, uh, you know, the... Um, uh, huge uh, degree of poverty and immiseration in the modern world infuriates me but if I'm irritated more than by one thing more than anything else in our you know in thinking about culture and thinking about media and communication mm -hmm. and so on mm -hmm. it's that tendency that you've just nicely described Toby that you know to, to assume that the technology is doing the work that that will democratise, that will liberate. And uh, uh, I think it probably peaked for me in around uh, 2005, 2006, that tendency for people to say, the world is changing. There are problems, of course, but it's generally changing for the better because we have this thing called the internet, digitalisation, convergence. It, it was an era where you could not have a conversation about um, about culture and communication without um, someone <laughs> invoking the idea that actually, you know, there's something happening that will take care of most things. Books like Henry Jenkins's Convergence Culture. Um, impressive books like Yokai Benkler's Wealth of Networks were kind of making intelligent versions of that argument but there was an everyday version of it as well there was an academic version of it that people were just kind of I guess relaying in, in, in lectures and you know conference discussions at the bar and 
but it goes back way further than that. It goes back way further than the internet. You know, mid nineties had its own version of internet filia. Uh, it, it goes back. There are versions of it right throughout. Um, well, modernity at least. So when video came along in the seventies um, uh, and eighties, the idea of people being able to make their own videos. There were very similar claims made about the empowerment of people, and you know. Empowerment's another mother owed an apple pie term, isn't it? Who could possibly be against the empowerment of, of, of people? But, you know, it's whether we um, have unrealistic uh, aspirations for what the technology can achieve. It's whether we go down um, dead ends in, in making these arguments. And I believe we do, or commentators constantly do that. They constantly overstate the democratising potential. Of, uh, of of various media technologies, and so I guess a lot of my work has been uh, trying to question that. And the cultural industries, if you know, I guess its central argument is something like uh, we risk overstating change at the expense of recognising the continuities in not only in the relations that people have to culture, but also in the organisation and institutions of cultural production. Mm. And, you know, that was a somewhat difficult position to hold in, in the first decade of the 21st century because of this rampant uh, technological utopianism. Absolutely. So, OK, that, that sounds like a pretty good answer, but... Um, one of the things I was, I'm still struck by is, uh, I, I want you to talk about the music area a bit in this. I oh, want yes. you to reach for I've, that end. Enjoy. Forgot it. that bit. No, that's okay, because <clears throat> it's quite clear that certainly in the United States, I don't know about the situation here, a whole category of people used to be called artists on repertoire or A and R people, middle management, but people mm. who would go out and listen to musical artists. Go to clubs, go to venues where people who, did, who were not contracted would perform, and they would report back and say, "Sign this person." A bit like scouts in football, for yeah. example. Those jobs, thank you very much. Are they used to be called sense. scouts before before that. Yes. Were they? They were called yeah. talent scouts yeah. before A and R came along to town. Yeah, right, I right. know that. So these jobs have largely gone, at least for the moment. There are informal ways in which they apply, but the sort of full-time A&R man, and I used to know them, I'm sure you did too, is departing the scene. People are using, or perhaps not so much right now, but certainly five years ago, even as MySpace became pretty irrelevant as it was taken over by Facebook as a nexus of people connecting with their biographies, became very central to free-ish exchange of music and opportunities for people to get known. Um, so on the one hand you get that happening, which does seem to me to be democratising, one can make that argument. On the other, you get, as part of Apple's tr complete triumph over the record labels, the emergence of associated regulation, laws and so on that really narrows the whole enterprise extraordinarily because customers start really quite quickly paying for music and they do so through the venue of iTunes and a couple of associated enterprises, when I say associated, like enterprises, but not in a way directly from bands 
on MySpace. So I guess what I'm putting up to you, and I, I want you to have as much of that egg as you want, hence the long question. I'm onto question. that delicious sandwich thing. Man. You're onto the sandwich thing, yeah, the ST. Yeah. It would be uh, uh, to talk about, on the one hand, the, what appears to have been a democratising element in the music industry, yeah. very bad people working in these companies, yeah. and on the other hand, appears to be an even more powerful legislative stranglehold. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm not in any way against the idea that um, digital technologies have uh, benefited music in all kinds of ways. I think um, the last uh, 10, 15 years has uh, seen I mean, it's incredible what you can do if you're a relatively well-off, kind of middle-classish sort of consumer. You know, the, the access to an unbelievable array of music and information, pleasurable information about that music is just wonderful. Lyrics websites, uh, Wikipedia are all music, which is where a lot of Wikipedia seems to come from. You know, discographies, commentary, rankings. I love it as a music consumer. Late last night, I was in a fight on email with somebody, or was it the night before, over the lyrics of Too Shy Shy, Hush Hush, <laughs> Can't you I Too I. Can't you Goo Goo rarely talked about on this couch, rather like Blackburn <laughs> Rovers Football Club. And I won. I found the website that confirmed that it was eye to eye and not some other bloody of expression. It, of course it was eye Thank to you eye. very much. Anyway, all right, sorry, I interrupted you. Who was this fool you were arguing with? <laughs> all that is just such a wonderful resource, I think. Um, but, and, and, and it has become, uh, I may have possibly spat out some food on On you. my child, on my leg. I'm really on sorry. My, uh, it's almost my other leg. I'm just rubbing it in very pleasurably, it, it, it listeners, was, it, with my napkin. It was the mention of Kajigugu that, that, that did it. That, that's that's I what know. caused me to spit There are other food. things I can offer <laughs> later on. We'll just see how you manage to restrain yourself. <laughs> really good try. They come down south, you'd think they prepare themselves. Some kind of cultural diplomacy course? I don't know. Apparently not. I'm... Uh, uh, I'm definitely going to take smaller bites of my sandwich from now on. Well, just so long as Lord Putnam doesn't suffer. Well, it's really important that I don't eat while I'm talking to him. <laughs> Otherwise, my peerage is down the pan. <laughs> but, yeah, the, 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 the claims that everybody can make it is just such a lot of crap. Uh -huh. I mean, it, it remains necessary to get your product, your piece of music, your bit of culture, known. So, as intelligent political economists have been pointing out for decades, that name again, Nicholas Gornham, again, somebody who I think helped clarify this very much in the 1980s, it comes down to distribution, circulation. That's still where the power lies. And it's still extremely difficult for uh, uh, amateurs and semi-professionals to uh, get their product known, even in the world of YouTube and things going viral, that remains the case. Public relations firms are devoted to trying to create that hype on behalf of people who are then presented to the world as if they stumbled across success from, uh, from their bedrooms. The, the other thing I'd say, Toby, is that I think it's really important to understand that in cultural production, in media production generally, 
it's there's always been a kind of battle between what you might call the cultural industries, creative industries, media industries, the firms producing the content, and those firms, those organisations that are involved in the machinery that disseminates it. So in the 1930s, 40s, 50s, it was um, um, the hardware manufacturers, the record player makers, the hi-fi makers. Um, it was uh, often the same companies would own both the software and the hardware, as it were. Um, you got that kind of oligopolization and concentration. But, you know, fundamentally, there was a battle between them taking place. From the 1990s onwards, in the sphere of culture, the fundamental battle and contradiction becomes between the IT sector and the cultural industries. And what you were pointing to in your question was, I think, the triumph of the IT sector. Not total triumph, because that, you know, it's dialectical. That battle hasn't been completely won for all time. But Apple basically got in on the action of the cultural industries and took a vast, vast portion of the market. That's what's happened. Of course, there are still intermediaries. There are still people making decisions about what goes through. There aren't, they aren't called A&R people anymore. The terms of intermediation have changed. Of course they have. But, you know, fundamentally what hasn't changed is that it's still very, very difficult to get your culture out to a big, big audience. Mm -hmm. Now, I heard a statistic on a podcast called Media Talk that The Guardian newspaper puts out. Uh, today that said that over 90% of British people listen to the radio and I presume this is people of consuming age so you know let's say 10 up to death or whatever uh, and they listen to the radio qua radio this is not on the internet it's not necessarily digital audio broadcasting which only certain radios are able to pick up it's the radio in the corner in the car but advertisers in this country have completely ignored this fact and have left the sector. And so there's a squeeze on for private companies operating in radio. And this, I didn't know this, I must admit. But one of the points that was being made was that actually here, the dummies who are slowpokes in everything are the advertisers because they keep thinking the money is in the internet when it's not even though mobility is attracting more and more advertising revenue here in the UK, as in tablets and telephones, the actual ongoing constant listening that means don't dodge ads, mm. <laughs> right, mm. is in what it was 25 years ago. Well, um, this might be the kind of uh, uh, flattery that will make people listening to this vomit but I loved a talk you gave when you um, ventured up to the north of England a few <laughs> years ago to lead things two or three years ago you came and you talked about the uh, resilience of television as a, as a cultural form and you gave a number of really striking statistics about uh, how people are still watching and hearing television uh, across the world uh, how it's growing in in many parts of the world and uh, again this goes back to what we were saying earlier that that kind of 
that, that desire to, to, to say the world is changing forever and is unrecognisable, you know, that kind of overstated, binaristic model of change that, you know, serves as PR for the, 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 the person advocating that view. It says, I'm ahead of the game, I, I've seen this truth, I have seen this future. And I don't know about you, Tony, Toby, I, I think it links with a whole kind of uh, a feature of capitalism, which is that capitalism's um, uh, uh, evaluation of what's good and bad is often based on future projections. Mm. Just as that internet failure was peaking in the uh, mid the middle of the first decade of the 21st century. I, I, I still can't say noughties, but, you know, well, it's that, that, that decade. You know. I know, and also only one country, only about three countries in the world know what you mean. Well, that, well, that, and there's something that's right. both Edwardian and absolutely Tory-ish about calling it that. So I saw you agonising over it, and I can't really say it either. So I'm so replacing I'm it with that very long and inelegant <laughs> phrase, the first decade of the 21st century. But at the same time as that internet failure, we had another example of the way in which um, uh, projections into the future determine a, a great deal in capitalist modernity, which was, you know, the disaster of what happened with finance capitalism, where, you know, everybody said this was the change, this was the change, and it would be like this. And of course, it turned out to be all a load of absolute nonsense with catastrophic consequences for billions of people. So, you know, of course, internet failure doesn't have the same degree of, of, of damage and venality and evil behind it. And in fact, you know, I welcome the utopian sentiments behind it, but in many ways, but, uh, but you know, there are, there are real problems with denying people's continuing ordinary cultural experiences you know yeah, I mean, people as you say still listen to the radio you go into candies the radio's playing you know it happens all over the place and it still matters to people and I hate the way that that is sidelined and marginalised by these these prophets of the future I wonder if in the time left to us we've got about ten minutes left Dave if I could ask you a slightly more personal question for some reason it's coming up in my thinking as we chat, which is, could you tell us a bit about your own, as the expression goes, media habits? You know, like, where, if we go through a typical day, include general interest, entertainment and work, you, you, you wake up, what happens in terms of your media use between then and when you go to bed? I think, uh, I want to answer that question a bit indirectly because the last two or three years of my life have been so uh, uh, atypical really because I've, uh, I've been having to work harder than I would like to and it leaves less room for those pleasures but both over the last two or three years and over the uh, most of my life um, I, I feel that um, and I think maybe a lot of listeners may feel something like this but um, music as um, I don't want to put it as uh, dramatic, melodramatically as uh, it saved my life but you know, there's a way in which I can't imagine how I, I would cope with my own inner life without music being you know, quite an important part of that. But to be honest, films and certain forms of, of television and, uh, and you know, increasingly the kind of strange fragmented touches you get through the internet are part of that too. Um, you know, I suppose looking back in my teens, you know, there, were, there were two or three discoveries that then resonated through my life. Um, 
One of them was, I guess, something like sophisticated Jewish-American comedy. You know, Woody Allen was such a key person for me in my, uh, in my team. Um, you know, I've got to confess that I'm, um, I'm not one of those people who, even though I, I want to recognise the value of commercial popular culture and the wonderful things it's given us, be it Woody Allen or uh, Kajigugu, <laughs> um, I, you know, I'm a, I, I have a, a deep respect of and love for um, certain forms of culture that might be called high culture. I hate that term actually because it dis- it's too dismissive. Um, so, um, I, 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 Beethoven's Violin Concerto would be as important a piece of music to me as. Uh, Television's Marquee Moon. I don't know if you know that album. That's um, um, probably the great, I remember the for band. me the greatest album that, of the late seventies. That Tom Verlaine. It was. It was yeah. Tom Verlaine. Yeah. Who was named after the French symbolist poet? You know, there was a, a kind of invocation there of, uh, of 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 high culture. I mean, of course, those cultural distinctions, as Bourdieu told us, um, are you know they reflect and they constitute those deeply damaging cleavages in society. But I want us all to cross them. I really do. Not not in a kind of um, I say that not with postmodernist sentiments that you know it's going to be easy for that to happen or that commercial culture will take care of that division. It's that you know the utopian aspiration has to be that the, the best is there for everyone. Um, so you know my cultural habits are, um, are um, you know they, they could uh, include uh, Marler or they could in- include some you know, crap comedy on, uh, on on the television. What about you? What's 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 your kind of rhythm of, of cultural consumption? Well. Lots of background. Yeah, is that right? Yes, lots of background. Now, in terms of, say, news and information, um, tell us a bit about that. What's your take on the idea of citizen journalism, moving away from cultural concerns in terms of pleasure, entertainment or education, and into the more conventional informational areas? What's your view of citizen journalism, of tweeting... Uh, that about events, of blogs about events, of the idea that journalism is being transformed because it is being opened up to the ordinary person. And that's another way of asking how you get your information, I suppose, yeah, as well yeah. as what you think about those. It's interesting. Isn't it? my, my answer was very much cultural, wasn't it? It was very much about, as you say, pleasure, entertainment, and so on. But. Um, I um, am a massive magazine reader. I have um, my, my family uh, are amused and bemused by the number of subscriptions I have. I get the London Review of Books. I get the Economist. Uh, we get the, the Guardian every day. Um, in physical form. In physical form. Um, I, uh, I I look at the internet all the time for news and information, but I still like to have hard copies with me. Um, can I just say that I, I hate the Kindle, I think the Kindle is crap, I mourn uh, the decline of bookshops, I mean uh, 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 HMV uh, 
a big British record uh, shop chain closed yesterday. I deeply mourn uh, the uh, the decline of, of the record shop as a, a cultural institution. And all, all, all uh, I, I, of course, I embrace digital culture. I tweet, I do Facebook, I do all that, and I know that it gives us great things. But if the bookshop disappears from our lives, I will put a curse upon the digital technorati who, uh, who made that happen. Um, I get most of my information from um, media that are traditionally rec- that, that were names that would have been around 20 years ago but are taking new forms. I think good journalism is absolutely crucial component of, uh, of, of a good society. Um, I think it's um, it's really important to open journalism up just as we need need to open up cultural production to more people from backgrounds that have traditionally been denied entry. But it's really interesting, I think, how now it seems to me that it's almost more pressing to defend the idea of good professional journalism uh, than it is to say that things should be opened up. Because... Over the last 20 or 30 years, the ground has moved so much. 30 years ago, I think it probably would have been most pressing to puncture the complacency and arrogance of professional journalism that claimed all kinds of um, um, vital roles for itself. Now it seems to me that it's it's vital to to recognise how difficult good journalism is and how important it, it is too. This goes back to what good jobs are. You know, it's not just good in the sense of whether somebody um, gains from it in terms of their experience. It's also whether it's good in terms of the contribution it makes to the world. Can I ask you as a final question how some of this might be achieved? And I want you to go for that egg. <laughs> because I can expand a little on what I'm saying. I really want to apologise to anybody who's listened through to the end of this for any <laughs> chomping on my part. <laughs> well, I was having a lot of nuts earlier. So, uh, one of the things that has been suggested in different countries is a role for the state at arm's length in assisting local radio, local television, and even local newspapers. One of the other things that's been suggested is a not-for-profit world where major philanthropists fund at a distance, rather like what old-school family media ownership was about, where people weren't actually looking for the quickest, largest return on investment. They wanted to make some money so they could lie around and do nothing. Think of the Salzburgers in the New York Times. But they didn't want to put their money into the thing that made you the most return. They thought there was a public interest that was being served. Other models are about uh, writing for free and selling on your work. There are now journalists at me who have columns in daily British newspapers who are paid nothing by the newspaper. And revenue comes to them from digital sales on, managed by the paper. What do you think might be the way of endowing this, given that we have in this country this massive creature, the BBC, that sucks up (laughs) gigantic amounts of money that could go 
to these other initiatives in a much broader way? Uh, um, good question, a really hard question. I'm a defender of the BBC, um, I should say that straight off. I, th I think that maintaining uh, a strong, dynamic and, and, and uh, democratised BBC uh, is one of the key ways in which, at least in Britain, um, culture, good culture might be promoted. And by good culture, I mean uh, a more democratic and a more... Uh, uh, a culture that's more responsive to the needs of uh, marginalised and working-class people as well as the middle classes who will always be served well under capitalist modernity. Uh, I think cultural subsidy um, still has to be a key part of it. I believe in the use of taxes to promote cultural production, not only um, at, at what you might call the highest level. So I would certainly want Britain, I would want any country to have cultural institutions where the most talented people could, could shine. Um, good symphony orchestras, good ballets, but also there's a need alongside that. Um, <clears throat> I'm constantly probed and get, I'm just going to take a drink of water because I've got a piece of egg in my throat. <laughs> much travelled, much discussed egg. <laughs> <clears throat> you would also want those two forms of, uh, uh, two, two ends of culture to be in dialogue with each other and for the grassroots cultural activism to, to constantly question what's happening in the leading cultural institutions. So these are fairly traditional answers. I'm, you know, I'm talking about the BBC, I'm talking about cultural subsidy, but I think, you know, and I'm, I'm not at all denying that there are possibilities that are opened up by digitalisation um, and that that um, makes possible certain sorts of cultural participation that are valuable. Um, but only if there's a kind of institutional politics and a state politics can we really uh, change things for the better. As you know, I like an old-fashioned man, particularly in the mid-afternoon. And an old-fashioned woman? Possibly so. Possibly not. But there isn't one of those here. <laughs> I know you're very, very gender-aware topic. That was a terrible dig of mine. It's been great chatting to you, Dave, and I would urge... It's been great chatting to your... you, Toby. I'm really sorry I spat that, that <laughs> crumb on your leg. I... I really urge any people, there probably aren't many, who are not familiar with your work, to get with the team. And I'm sure that a number of people listening, probably the plurality, will be very familiar with it and will have enjoyed hearing more about it. And I hope that when you and your collaborators, including Kate Oakley, who's been in this pod, finish this next project about lovies uh, <laughs> and the great and the good, you'll step down from the House of Lords just for a moment uh, in time to re-enter the pod and share some more thoughts. I might take off my ermine coat briefly <laughs> and, and, and do that, but no, it's been great. Thanks very much indeed, Toby. Really enjoyed it. <laughs>